to welcome back to Sports Talk. Great to welcome back a guest who was with us, uh, I guess, about eight years ago right now. And uh, he's back with us with another great book. We talked to him before on his book on uh, the great Pete Rose. But he's written a really fascinating book now about uh, the legendary uh, Jackie Robinson. Uh, of course, this is the uh, 75th anniversary of when uh, Jackie Robinson broke into baseball back in 1947. Also, the 50th uh, anniversary of his passing back in 1972. And we're joined today by the great uh, writer Kostya Kennedy from up in uh, uh, New York today. And uh, Kostya, good to talk with you again. How have you been? I've been well, Doug. It's great to be on with you again. Yeah, we were just chatting before we went on. Uh, the last time we chatted was with uh, when you had the Pete Rose book out, and uh, we were just talking a little bit about uh, what Pete Rose has been doing, a legendary baseball player. But uh, really, I think if anybody had to pick one player that uh, really revolutionized the game in more than one way, uh, you can say Babe Ruth did, of course, but not like Jackie Robinson did, and, and that, that's really what you touch on in this book. Yeah, I mean, I think he's really in a class of one. I mean, there's, there's no question that, that Babe Ruth impacts, he, he basically saved baseball, um, was, was outside and tremendous. And there's been other players, um, Lou Gehrig, Roberto Clemente, Jim Abbott, you know, there's been sure. players who's flipped outside the bounds of the game in, in really powerful ways, but certainly none more so than, than Jackie Robinson for what he, what he did. And, and I think it's important to remember just at the outset as we get into it is that, it wasn't just that he was the first. It was the way he, the way he used that opportunity, right? He was a great, great player. Um, he wasn't a guy, and, and look, if he'd been a guy who came along and played a couple of years, it would still would have been incredible to go through what he went through and play as that pioneer. But I think the reason we're still talking about him today and the reason why his impact is felt is because of how he conducted himself, what he achieved over the course of his major league career and then in his life afterwards. I should say the title of the book is called True, the Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson, and those four seasons are uh, 1946, uh, where he played uh, minor league ball for the first year, Montreal Royals, the Dodgers farm team, and then 1949, the MVP season, uh, 1956, his last year as a major league player, and then uh, 1972, the year that he uh, that he passed away at a very young age. I think it was, what, 53, 54, right? Yeah, just 53 years old, and yeah, those are the, those are the uh, seasons that you outline, and it's a look at those years, and they're also metaphorically the uh, 46, 49, 56, and 72 uh, represent the spring, summer, autumn, and, and winter of his of his public and, and athletic life. Yeah. So each year is very distinct, and we see a progression. You know, the first year in 46, you mentioned. Uh, yeah, he was in the minor league, but he was, he was, except for a couple of weeks in the beginning when he had a black teammate, he was the only black player in an all-white league, in a good league, you know, in, in the international sure. league was, was, was the, the next stop for the major leagues. He's a lot of major leagues, future major leaguers, or former major leaguers around him, including Yogi Berra uh, on a rival team. And, um, so that was really a year when he, in some ways, began to break the color barrier, even though, of course, that he was 47 when he came to and Costa, I think you and I are roughly in the same age group. Where neither of us uh, saw Jackie play live, of course. I think we both probably watched those uh, old shows, uh, Sports Challenge, right? Jackie Robinson, you mentioned it in the book, was on that, and the great film clips of of him, and then later on. Uh, we saw him, of course, at the World Series in 72, kind of making his final public appearance uh, where he hoped to see a black man managing right on the third base side uh, someday. But uh, how did you do your research on this? I guess going back in the archives, getting a lot of film and, uh, and newspaper clippings, or how did you do it? Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't fortunate enough really to see any, any of that uh, live. I've been, I've been playing or speaking, but I did 
I, of course, you see snippets, and, and there's been documentaries on him. I also had access uh, to more to MLB Network, and they were very good about giving me some, some archival footage of him, uh, video footage. Uh, so that, that provided something for me to really have a sense of him, how he played, and the way he, he composed himself, presented himself. Uh, but a lot of the detail, yeah, was through uh, newspaper clippings, coverage at the time, radio recordings. I also spoke to a lot of people. We still have a window where there were people who were alive and in their teens in 1946 and mm. could remember what it was like when he came to Montreal uh, that year. And certainly that was the case of 49. There, there are plenty of people still around who uh, remember what it was like uh, to have Jackie, Jackie among them and Jackie doing what he was doing in, in, in that year in Brooklyn. Uh, so I spoke to a lot of people, um, and I... I had a basis through the family. I had done a, uh, a story on Rachel Robinson, his widow, who was going to be still with us, going to be 100 this year. Wow. Um, and I'd done a story for Sports Illustrated uh, some years ago and I maintained a relationship with her and with uh, Rachel and Jackie's children, um, Sharon and David. So I'd spoken to them over the years. I'd really been gathering string on this book stuff for for some years during my time at SI and yeah. while working on other things. So that was that's what it all, all helped me put it together. And I think a lot of people don't realize, and I've heard a little bit, you know, when you study Jackie Robinson, kind of, you know, learning about baseball, but what a great athlete he was outside of baseball. I mean, he was a tremendous football player, right? Didn't he play at UCLA? Pretty good basketball player too, right? Oh, he was exceptional. He was, a, yeah, a great football player, headline maker at UCLA. He led with four sports there, baseball, basketball, football, and track, and it's likely he would have been in the 1940 Olympics uh, as, a, as a broad jumper in some form on the track team. His older brother, Mac, finished second to Jesse Owens in the 1936 Oh, right, Olympics. sure. Um, yeah. So he was an extremely good athlete. Uh, you know, honestly, baseball was not necessarily his best sport, and part of the reason why he spent that first year in, in uh, the equivalent of AAA is that he, you know he was still quite raw as a player. He was clearly talented, and some of the, the football moves came to play on his on his unique base running, the way he would attack the base pass and be so inventive. Uh, but he he was still new to the game. He he hadn't had sort of the coaching and the experience of games under his belt when he was playing in 1946. So it was crucial to get him ready for the major leagues at that time. He probably. Could have gone into, uh, I don't know if it was the NFL then, in in forty in the early 40s, or during the war years, whatever league was there. I guess there was a couple of leagues at that point. Did he think of that seriously? Because he probably would have uh, broke right into the NFL as a running back. Or, or was baseball kind of in the back of his mind because uh, he played, of course, in the Negro Leagues? Yeah, I mean, he was pretty smart about it. He, he didn't have a specific opportunity to go into into football for, for various reasons. Um, and, you know, he was... He was he had the size and he had the strength, but he, he wasn't necessarily recruited. There were, the NFL was much, much, much less profitable, much less. Yeah, not a, much money back a, then, a, right? Yeah. yeah, not much money back then, not a big deal at all. It wasn't really watched and followed very much. It was kind of a niche sport. Um, and he was also, when he went into the Army in 1945, he was asked to play on the Army football team, and he, he didn't want it because he wanted to preserve his knees and his legs into uh, Major League Baseball or, or with the Montreal Royals first in the minor league. He played for a season, 45 games with the Kansas City Monarchs in the old Negro League. Um, so he, he saw baseball as a way to 
have a have a career that wouldn't wouldn't decimate your body and, and might have some opportunity, even though you know as a Negro Negro, the opportunities are very small to really make it make it clear. Yeah, we'll just touch briefly on the four seasons, as we mentioned. The book is broken down into those four. Uh, chapters, and you mentioned Montreal Royals, the uh, the Dodgers farm team, and you always wonder how did they uh, play baseball? Uh, well, they did, of course, with the Expos played outside in Cherry Park when they came in the league. But how, how did they play yeah. baseball in Montreal uh, in in the early spring? But uh, they were able to do it, but it was crummy weather, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great point. Uh, the early part of the year, and then later, the Royals made the Little World Series, as it was called, then, uh, and they ended up winning the World Series. Of- the minor league world series that year and at the bookends of the season in april and then again in september october it was awfully cold you know in the summer it was fine i don't know if you've been up to montreal but i haven't no the summer, yeah. <laughs> yeah so no it's not you know it's, it's quite quite lovely in, in the summertime so they had a lot of their games there um but it was definitely you're right the cold you know and, and they played a lot of teams there was a team in toronto every other team was in the united states but they were, they were up in syracuse buffalo uh, Rochester, right? So it was certainly cold weather. There was a team down in Montreal. There was a team in Jersey City. So we got a little, little I'm sorry, there was a team down in Baltimore, I meant to say. Uh, and in Jersey City. So they did get a little more south. But you, you're right. The weather is definitely something they have to contend with uh, at the start of that year. And you point out in the book, too, uh, and that's kind of uh, really the, the, the crux of Jackie Robinson's uh, importance, uh, you know, the racism, racism, of course, but uh, I think, Rachel, you talk about her in the book. Uh, when they lived in Montreal, they didn't have, I don't know if they had none, but there was very little of it, right, uh, as as black couple living in Montreal during yeah, those no, years. Yeah, no, it's just because not only were they a black couple living in an all-white neighborhood, there was also a French-speaking neighborhood, and neither right. one of them spoke French. Um, but So they had that sort of uncertainty of not quite fitting in. But they were welcomed very warmly. You know, in, in those days, um, it's not to say there was no black white racism in Canada. Certainly there was. But there was no segregation. There was no history of, of segregation like that, uh, legalized segregation. And most of the real tension was ethnic or French-English. Uh, right. The black-white issue just wasn't as big of a thing as it was, uh, obviously, in, in this country. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. I think you had a, a little few uh, lines in the book that he actually met, uh, what, the great Maurice Rocket Richard, right, the Canadians. They, they, they were friends? Oh, yeah, the Canadians. Absolutely. Yeah. They went, they, they did a, uh, a hospital visit together, and they were all, and all the other athletes loved Jackie, right? I mean, you, you couldn't help but, <laughs> because he was, he was extremely good. He was extremely dedicated. He was doing something that, I mean, there was a lot of pressure that was on him, obviously facing the racism of people who didn't want him to succeed. That was sure. that's very difficult. But even, you know, he'd get up and, and the African-American newspapers before his first game against the Jersey City Giants in 1946 were saying the hopes of 14 million uh, Negro Americans are riding on his shoulders, right? So even the people who are rooting for him, there's this outsized pressure on him. Um, and we can talk about that from where we sit, but athletes really know what that's about. Sure. And, and so, so the hockey players in Montreal who had their own kind of pressure, it was a huge deal to be a Canadian, obviously, um, gravitated to that and, and really appreciated the way he was able to succeed with that kind of focus upon him. Just going on a tangent a bit, did, I don't know, did, did you hear the story? Vin Scully would tell it once in a while about 
him and Jackie Robinson, I think it was off-season, they went up to Kutcher's, I think they did an appearance, and about the ice skating story. Did, did, do you know that one? Have, I, I, I do know a little bit about his uh, Jackie's uh, ill-fated ice skating, uh, and I do know that he uh, he skated at a at a rink with with Vince Scully, but I'm not sure if I know this uh, this this story you're about to. You're, you're I was going to say, yeah, Vin, uh, you know, a great storyteller, obviously, and he and people would ask him when he was retiring, you know, what it was like to know Jackie Robinson. And I guess they went up to this event, and uh, I guess somebody said, "Did you bring your ice skates, Jackie?" And so I've uh, you know, I don't know, but uh, he, he challenged Vin to a uh, ice skating race, and Vin, of course, grew up in New York, so he was a pretty good ice skater. And uh, they did a race, and then Jackie was put him on, and he was kind of stumbling around. And Vin said, "Well, I'm going to probably beat you pretty easily, Jackie." And uh, you know, you never skated before. And Jackie said to Vin, "Well, that's how I'll learn." And that was kind of Vin's way of saying wow. Jackie's competitive spirit. He knew he couldn't skate, yep. but he was going to try anyway. So that that kind of was wow, uh, the ice skating story. I didn't tell it as well as Ben, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. You get the point across, and I, ha- I hadn't heard that. It's a great, great insight. Yeah. I do know that he, he hadn't been a golfer, um, and he started playing golf as a guy I spoke with a lot named Tom Delante, who was very close with Jackie. They, uh, Jackie was in Tom's wedding, and uh, uh, Delante was a uh, an ad- uh, advertising guy who worked with, with the Dodgers. Anyway, he and, he and Robinson were very close, and he started golfing with Robinson, and Robinson was really had never golfed, very awkward swing, uh, kind of acting at it. But within, you know, a week, a couple weeks, now he's, you know, shooting in the low 90s, now he's shooting in the 80s, now he's shooting in the 70s. He's wow. an incredibly good, good athlete with great coordination. Um, and when he decided he was going to get good at something, that's what he did. He got good at it. So I believe that ice skating story, absolutely. He, he was an unbelievable, I mean, all professional athletes have to be great competitors, but he really had another notch, didn't he, in, in the belt uh, for, for competition? Well, I, I, th- I think, you know, Duke Snyder is the greatest competitor he ever saw, and Carl Oskar, who I had a chance to speak with extensively for this book, talked about that. He, he, he was really on a mission, Doug. I think that he knew, he knew, again, what he was representing. He was aware that he was Jackie Robinson. I'm putting that in quotes, meaning he wasn't just himself, but right. he was a figure. And, and he was on a mission. He wanted to compete, of course. He wanted to win for his team. He wanted to represent himself well. It was, it was extremely important to him. You know, and there are other competitors, but he had a little something uh, or maybe a lot of something else riding on his, on his success and on the success of the team around him. And this again, obviously, you and I never saw him play live, but just the the, the films that you can see of him, he really, I think, was uh, the first ball player to bring the stolen base uh, to prominence. I know Ty Cobb, you know, the all time great stolen base leader in his era, but it wasn't the same as what Jackie did. I mean, he could steal second, steal third, and steal home, uh, and you don't see anybody steal home anymore, right? He, he did that a lot. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, Cobb was a guy. Remember when Jackie came came in? Uh, seemed so long ago and wasn't so long ago, but it was already 25 years after people had seen Ty Cobb, right? So it was yeah. a long time in between players. And Cobb was the one guy who um, Robinson sometimes would get comparisons to as a base runner. Uh, no, he was extremely aggressive, extremely daring. He had that, because he was so physical, uh, such a strong guy and agile, uh, that brought an element uh, to his base running, a lot of guys didn't have. He had sort of the jukes and moves of the running back in football, which is what he had been. Uh, and he, yeah, as you say, especially early on, he he ran a lot. He knew he'd get caught sometimes, and he was pretty calculated. Branch Rickey, the general manager, 
was way ahead on analytics and stuff, right? So he was running, and Jackie had a great intuitive sense of it too. So he'd often run with two outs when there's, you know, there's, there's less of a statistical risk to do that, or he'd run game situation when there was less of a statistical risk that he would get caught. Uh, and as he got older, he continued to be among the, the league leaders in stolen bases. His numbers came down a lot, but he got much more efficient. He, you know, he'd be 14 stolen bases, only caught three times, no. that kind of stuff, later in his career. So, uh, no, an exquisite, exquisite base runner. And, and again, like unlike anything people have, had seen, but even just when he was coming out of the third base line, be hollering at the pitcher, rattling the pitcher, uh, the next guy, Carl Willow would often get hit by a pitch or there'd be a, a balk or something. So, yeah, disruptive, to say the least. And sadly, that aspect of the baseball of baseball today, among many other things, unfortunately, is pretty much gone, a stolen base. I mean, uh, that, that whole part of the game, the hit and run, the, you know, taking an extra base on a throw, you just don't see it anymore or hardly at all. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. You know, I mean, I think we see a little bit with a team like the Tampa Bay Rays. Yeah, they, they do a little bit of that, right? Yeah, and there's a, there's a few guys here and there who, who are out there making it happen, um, certain teams. Uh, and I think we might see it come back. I hope so. so far. Yeah, it's true because a lot of the analytics, um, it makes sense from a, from a standpoint if you're trying to win, you know, you don't want to risk the out. Uh, but they, they, they go against what's fun to watch, right? So um, it, it's great to see, obviously, people running the bases well, a lot of activity out there. And I, I think it may see it begin to swing back a little bit. Well, that, that's really the whole key right there. The analytics have taken all the, uh, you know, nobody wants to take a risk. Back when Jackie played, you, you did it. I mean, if you thought you could go, you went. You didn't really have to ask uh, the manager and read the book and say, is this the right time to go? I think, that, I think that's what's missing from the game today, I think. Yeah, it's one of the things, you know, it, it's difficult, though, because I feel, you know, you and me, I, I cover the game, too, and, and I, if I was the decision maker, you know, deciding what players should do, it's hard to argue with the data, you right. know, the fact that, you, you know, you're, you're more likely to win if you do certain things and other things. But as an entertainment product, things like the shift, things like, you know, the stolen base, uh, the bunt, uh, bunt you know, sure. especially the squeeze bunt, or those things, which can be fun to watch, right? And you don't want a high strikeout guy in there as, as a fan. Um, but so, so we're hoping that, that that I will switch and maybe will even into replay, which I'm a favor of, uh, in favor of overall because it gets things right. But we all remember the days of, of Bobby Thomas or Bill Lawrence or whoever it was coming out and, you know, getting red faced and then the umpire <laughs> in the umpire's grill and, and all that. <laughs> it was fun to watch for a fan. You oh, sure. never see it anymore because. What's to argue about? The video has told us the truth. Yeah, right. The, um, the ejection so, uh, has gone out of the game almost. Except for, I guess, some much. manager will argue balls and strikes. that They, they get ejected, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you want to get ejected, there's still a way. But, right. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, it's much less. Talking with Costia Kennedy, the name of the book is True, the Four Seasons of uh, Jackie Robinson. We touched on 1946, of course, 1949, the great... MVP year, and, and for all of Jackie's career, when he came up in 47 to uh, finally leaving in 56, uh, being in the World Series uh, just about every year, most of them uh, against the Yankees. Uh, I mean, he was in the national spotlight. Now, not television as much. I guess it was early television in the 50s, but uh, right. network radio, right? I mean, that's where people listen to the World Series, mostly. Yeah, network radio. There were games in the 50s and the uh, there were newsreels, right? But we'd go see the movie and there'd be like, you'd go see a movie at the, your local movie theater and then the newsreels would tell you 
you know, what was happening around the country in all different uh, sports. And baseball was obviously the number one sport in the country by far. So he would be, he would be seen that way. Uh, a lot of media coverage in, in print. Um, but, yeah, he didn't really have that national spotlight. Um, the, the fact that he was in the World Series gave him a little bit more than, than some other players did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not certainly nothing like what somebody like that would have today. Well, was he able to get any kind of endorsements back then? Obviously, uh, the, the racism thing, uh, you know, corporations were wary, I guess, uh, unfortunately. But did he get any uh, endorsements back he in those years? He didn't really have endorsements. He had, he had, he had some, some minor endorsements, like local endorsements. Um, in, and, in Brooklyn, and, yeah. Yeah, in Brooklyn, in New York, um he had a couple of things, small things in L.A. where he was from, like later on. But for the most part, you know, he wasn't uh, Mr. Coffee or, or anything like that. You know, he didn't have those, no. those opportunities. And he didn't make a lot of money. I mean, for the time, I guess he was paid okay. But uh, I think you talk about it in the book. Uh, the salary wasn't, even for that time, great for what he was bringing into the ballpark, the people he brought in. No, no, I mean, he was, he was paid commensurate. He was within the Dodger structure. He was paid fairly. He was... You know, at a couple of years, he was the highest paid. Oh, was he? Okay. It just seemed kind of, maybe I'm just going by on the curve. It seemed no, like no, a low no. salary. <laughs> you know, it was a low salary. And certainly, if you were to look at, uh, you know, he didn't, he never made like what DiMaggio made or Hank Greenberg. Right, or Ted Williams. Yeah. Or Ted Williams. You know, that's a good point. Um, the, the Dodgers famously underpaid their players. Um, so they, they were all fighting against that. Now, you know, Jackie. Would, would make what he would make, but he just didn't really, you know, rise to that that level of, of the guys we're talking about um, because that's just how the Dodgers did business. But he wasn't somebody. I also wrote a book on Joe DiMaggio, who was who made plenty of money. Right. And Joe pretty much held out every year. He was one of the first players to really hold out. Um, and Robinson never did that, you know. And even he, he, he accepted a pay cut at the end of his career right, because yeah, he had right. had a good season and. He sort of, you know, he, he did have, while well, he didn't have these big sponsorships, he did have some other um, ways to make money through. He was, had radio shows, TV shows, he did appearances that he was paid for. Again, not not huge amounts of money the way we're talking about today or, or separating himself from everyday society uh, with that kind of money, but certainly making a good living in different ways. He wasn't, he wasn't really about that. He wasn't looking to make the last dollar or... Uh, do anything more than just provide as nice as he could for his family. And he was good on TV. I mean, there's some you can see some interviews he did back when he was playing, but also later on when he's with uh, Track Full of Nuts. Uh, Dick Cavett had him on. There's some clips of that. Uh, yep. uh, so he was very good on camera. I don't know if he you know, taught himself that or just was a natural ability, but he was very good. What's my line? He was on that. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it all started. Or one of the early things was in, in early 1950s. So he's now had three seasons in the major leagues, and they make the Jackie Robinson story, the movie. Right. And who plays Jackie Robinson? Well, Jackie Robinson That's plays right. himself <laughs> in, on a cast with everybody else with professional actors. His wife, Rachel, was played by an actress named Ruby Dee, who had a lot of credit to her, to her name. Um, and he was certainly, you know, I mean, when I'm talking Lawrence Olivier, but we're talking <laughs> somebody who uh, certainly read his lines well and then uh, seemed very comfortable in the role. So. Uh, yeah, he, he was definitely, the camera liked him, and he was certainly very, very comfortable there and very adept at, at acting and, and being 
being interviewed and interviewing others, which is something else I did on the Dome Show. Yeah, I didn't realize until I read in your book that he worked with uh, uh, Marty Glickman, great broadcaster. I grew up yeah. the tail end of his career, but I did hear Marty, and Marty was a legend in New York. Yeah, they had kind of an edgy show, and not surprisingly, you know, you know Marty, and, and he had he represented, he'd been discriminated against as a, as a Jewish sure. athlete. The Olympics, and right. So he, exactly. So he would talk about that, and, and they, they took on issues. Um, and some people liked it, and some people didn't. But um, that was part of what part of what Jackie did, yeah. So he right, he partnered with with Marty. And are there any are there any audio clips of that anywhere? I'll have to look up on YouTube. There might be, right? Uh, then I, you know, I did get a, cu- a hold of a couple. I'm not sure how public uh, they are, right. or, or but there's not a lot. In any case, it's not, it's not as if you know everything was taped and lives on forever, kind of the way it is today. But yeah. um, just some I'm like you. Anything broadcast, and I, I like I, I search for it. <laughs> yeah, that. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, Marty was a legend. Of course, uh, that must have been fun to listen to. And then he mentioned 1956. We'll just touch on it briefly. That was his last year. He was actually going to be hard to believe. The Dodgers won. Now he was toward the end of his career, obviously. But the Dodgers were going to trade him to the hated Giants. I mean, if you're going to trade Jackie, at least make it another team. But the Giants, he didn't. He wasn't going to go anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, but you have to think about it. In those years, there were there were only so many teams that had really integrated black players into their team. Now, a lot of most teams by 1956 had had a black player here or there, but not that many were sort of. So at that point, Jackie was not a superstar. He was still an adequate. He made himself a good player last year. Um, and there weren't all that many teams that were going to trade for Jackie Robinson as much as you would think that there, there would be or should have been. So anyway, they, they, he never ended up going. Um, and he never, never ended up, ended up giving Walter O'Malley, the Dodgers owner, for making that trade. Uh, but certainly a bizarre kind of end. Uh, it came after he had privately retired from baseball. That the Dodgers made the trade, and then he announced that he was not going to go to the Giants. So yeah. it never came to be, but... Uh, certainly, uh, you're right. To go to the rival, secondary arch rival. I guess the Yankees will always be the be the main rival, but the secondary arch rival is certainly the Giants. Right. Yeah, that was the year he retired and uh, went pretty much right into business. Uh, what chock full of nuts? Uh, people in New York remember that uh, that brand. Uh, they had a bunch of uh, coffee shops around uh, New York City, and of course the commercials. Good to the what is it? Uh, the Heavenly Coffee wasn't that their commercial? Yep, but uh, yep. he, he was in charge of pers- personnel. I mean, it was a regular nine to five job. It wasn't a, a glad handing job for the most part, right? I no, mean, no, he. You're right, and and you know, you're talking about salary. But he got he basically had the same salary for that job that he'd been making as a major league baseball player. So he made that transition. There was a lot of paperwork. It was a real job. He had to hire people. He had to fire people. He ultimately really didn't like it. Um, right. He just, he, it was, you know, a ton of paperwork, administrative stuff, which he really didn't go for. Uh, but he did do it for a while with a very good stead um, with, with William Black, who was the head of Chocolate uh, Nuts at that time. Uh, he also quite early on began work for the NAACP and doing other things on the civil rights front. But that was always part of his post-career path, as well as having uh, jobs. He later worked for a bank. Um, and did, did lots of other things in sort of the uh, business world and the private sector, as well as the public sector. He was he was on uh, Governor Nelson's staff. But one thing about Robinson, he stayed he stayed really active in his post career life. He did, yeah, and he spoke out uh, when asked about uh, racism or any other issue. I mean, he was not uh, he did not back down, which uh, people respected him for that. I think that was that was good that yeah, he kept no, doing I mean, that. 
you know, you're right, and you, you know, remember this is before Muhammad Ali, it's before James uh, Jim Brown became a you know was outspoken. So no one really asked like doing it. He didn't always necessarily sort of rattle rounds and, and just say no, stuff no. to get a rise, but he would talk about stuff. He'd just talk honestly about it. And one thing that was interesting about Robinson, he was, of course, very liberal, I guess, or in, in favor of, of integration and, and civil rights. But in many ways, he was, he was economically very conservative. He um, had a lot of sort of conservative values. He wasn't easy to, to pin down. Um, as I mentioned, he worked for Rockefeller. He spent a lot of his life as a as a Republican. Uh, then when Barry Goldwater came into the Republican Party, he uh, went over and he ended up voting for, voting for Humphrey. Right. Um, so he, he, he had particular goals and ideas for what he thought was right, um, but he wasn't so easy to, to pin down or categorize uh, in terms of his political. I want to f- finish up briefly a couple more minutes with, with Costa Kennedy. The name of the book is True, The Four Seasons of uh, Jackie Robinson, of course, 1972, uh, the year that he that he passed away, of course, our 50th anniversary this year of that. But his final public appearance was uh, at the World Series that year. What Cincinnati and uh, who was in that Oakland, okay. right? And okay, he went yeah. on in the field, and they gave him an award, and he made the speech uh, about he'd like to see a, a blackface managing on the third base side someday. So that uh, kind of led the way yeah, for that- Frank Robinson. What two years later, becoming the first uh, player manager, right, or three years later, whatever it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly right. A couple of years later, um, and, and it was sort of classic Robinson in so many ways. First of all, I mean, there was nine years, sorry, nine, years, nine days before he died, uh, so he was really working right up to the end. But when he got up there, so he's being honored before Game Two of the World Series. It's now 25 years since he's broken into the Major League Baseball, and for all the disruption that he caused and all the pioneering that he did. Robinson was a guy who played very much within the rules. So he, he went up there, and the first thing he did was thank Commissioner Bowie Kuhn, who was on the field, thank baseball, thank Wee Reese, who was the, the captain of the Dodgers and his great friend, who was also there that day, appreciate the opportunity, and then used his sort of last line or two to say, I'm extremely uh, proud and pleased, but I'll be even more proud and pleased when I see a black face managing in the third base box in those days, that's where managers tended to be, to work from, the third right. base box. Um, so he he at once sort of appreciated the opportunity he had and made sure that he was using that opportunity to, to make a table. Um, and, and there's no question he was, he was active in that way. And um, it led to some him not necessarily doing all that he might have done within baseball because he wanted to be uh, wanted to be outspoken and wanted to talk about things that he felt needed to be changed. And sadly, like we mentioned before, he died at only 53. Ed, it, was, it was mostly the bad diabetes. Was that was that primarily the cause, or did he have other issues, yep. too? Yeah. It was really, I mean, the other issues, essentially, it seems like were related to the diabetes, but he yeah. certainly had heart issues, circulation issues. Yeah, I think he had had it for a long time, and then all of a sudden it just kind of caught up with him. He had, he looked, he, the hair turned gray, and he, he got old looking, older looking quickly. I mean, yeah, you know, it's sad. But uh, and as we mentioned, uh, 1972, 50 years ago, that uh, that Jackie Robinson passed away. But uh, what what a life he led, Costia. I mean, uh, in in those uh, relatively short amount of time as a player, about nine seasons, ten seasons, and then, of course, after that, uh, in his work life, uh, uh, must have been a great honor for you to, uh, I mean, you've done, of course, the book on Pete Rose and Joe DiMaggio, but I would imagine this one had a little more of a special meaning to you. 
No, it really did, and seeing the way some people have reacted uh, to to the book, partly obviously because of, of this subject. So it's uh, been a been it has been a you know a great honor to have had the chance to, to write about him and spend some time in that whole milieu. Very incredibly impactful life, to say the least. True, the four seasons of Jackie Robinson is the title. And Costi, I know it's available everywhere. Any particular website you want to direct people to? Uh, you know, my my own site is just my name, Kennedy dot com. Uh, but you can you can go right to Amazon or or your bookseller, wherever it is that you buy books, and you can uh, you know that's where you can get it. Great. We'll also put a link uh, on our website as well. But Kasia, I know we kept you longer, but it's just fun talking to you. It's fun talking baseball, and uh, you got another book in the works. Love to have you on when that's ready. But uh, thanks for joining us tonight. My pleasure, Doug. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Stan Brock. 30 years ago, I formed Remote Area Medical to help people overseas. But then we found generations of families in America, isolated by poverty from the health care they need. Together, we can take dental, vision, and medical help to a million adults and their kids, right here at home in the United States of America. <laughs> 